On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to David Kersner. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special edition of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we once again talk to In Continuum's Dave Kersner. Fantastic. That was uh, that was that was pretty clean, guys. Dave, welcome back to the uh, to the podcast, man. Happy to have you back. This is exciting. Thank you, guys. Happy to be back. So I've been listening to this nonstop. So acceleration theory is is, is the topic for the day, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm brimming with excitement and, and ready to jump into this. To be clear, we um, interviewed you in August, Dave, and since then you, you've done a couple of interviews. Um, uh, that, that might be great for folks who haven't heard them. Uh, uh, you joined up with, um, Nick, Nick DiVirgilio on Sonic Perspectives, and you guys did a great retrospective of what it was like to work with Kevin Gilbert doing The Lamb. So I recommend that to anyone out there who didn't manage to catch that. Uh, we, we won't necessarily cover all that here. That, that's in our August interview, and that's very well done with you and Nick. So we've got that historical context, and, and now now we're jumping right to the present with your release of Acceleration Theory Part Two. Uh, Dave, I'm going to jump in here. So you inter- you spent an hour with Ken and Joe a few months back, and I think it was one of the most entertaining hours that that we published of of 2019 on our podcast. And after listening, I went to listen to Acceleration Theory Part One. And I was absolutely smitten from day one. And now that Acceleration Theory Part 2 is out, I am, you know, it is just, it, I'm in a wonderful state. And, and I usually am, I'm not allowed to come to these interviews because I usually turn into like fanboy and, and ask really dumb things. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to do that. But I, but I just want to... Um, I just want to tell you how excited I am to be to be talking about this. And you and I stumbled upon each other on Instagram one night, and usually Ken's in charge of the outreach. And this was before Thanksgiving, so I was all Jones to talk about Acceleration Theory Part 2, the whole story all together. But who knows? Maybe by now you've already released another album or two um, <laughs> that you'll want to talk about. Because you seem, you seem to be having one of the most prolific years of, uh, of any progressive rock artist of all time. <laughs> huh. I don't know about all time, but uh, definitely a prolific year uh, for me. And uh, especially because I kind of feel like I had to put the pedal to the metal uh, since the nature of the whole project was born out of Sound of Contact, which was taking, uh, by contrast, way too long to do a follow-up uh, to Dimension on. So that's how it all started, and and um, you know it just be, it just became like well, look, it's sort of almost kind of like 
like I'm really sorry that we couldn't release anything else. But now that at least my songs or the songs that I'm the lead songwriter on are under my control, how about two albums in one year? You know, I just thought that was a nice way to. Plus, it's also kind of capitalizing off of the momentum of the first one, where you know it's it's part one. It's called part one, so you know that there's another part, at least one more coming. And um, so you get this kind of, because I, I could have done what I did for my first solo record, New World, where three months after the first CD, I released a double CD version. Um, and in retrospect, I think I kind of uh, spoiled the, the, the more popular version is the two CD version, which is great, but um, it didn't really give the single CD version enough of its own time to be digested as its th own thing. And um, I kind of had to do that because I did a Kickstarter and I had to deliver it when it was done and that's when it was done. But, um, and also, even though a lot of people uh, really do enjoy New World Deluxe Edition, and I haven't actually had really many complaints or anyone say that it's too long and this and that, but it is over two hours. And uh, so is Acceleration Theory Part 1 and 2 when you combine them. And I just thought this time, I thought, first of all, I, can, I could get the first one done sooner if there isn't a second CD that had to be done right away. And because I had a lot of headway already on it, but um, that's why I was able to do it within the same year. But but I just focused on the first one and let you guys digest the first one and be hungry for more. It was just a different approach. It's basically a similar kind of thing where it's almost like a double album, but it's split up in part one, part two. You know? So when you talk about that, I mean, did you always envision this group of songs then like as a, a, essentially a double album that you just wanted to you know, record it and release it separately? Or did it just sort of, did it naturally happen that way that, hey, this is sort of, you know, continuing on what I did before? Well, actually, um, I'll tell you something interesting. <laughs> for me, for whatever, I, well, I do know the reasons. Um, for me, the perfect album length is 90 minutes. <laughs> really? But 90 minutes, okay. Because, I'll tell you why. Um, because... I because it's progressive rock, I like to do you know at least one if not two or three longer songs, and then you know a decent amount of you know like shorter songs not shorter but like let's say four or five six minute songs, mm -hmm. um, and maybe even and some segues that are maybe two minutes and stuff. So when you add all that up, it kind of at least. It, it can potentially overflow past the limits of a CD. Um, and then once you do that, you might as well, you know, embellish it further to fill up the other CD, potentially, as long as it's not filler. But you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's, it's becomes a two CD affair and putting like three songs on the second CD just to me feels a little bit sort of wasteful. But, um, but at the same time, there's, if there's enough material, and there usually is, um, then it, it warrants it. Although, ironically, on Static, uh, my second solo record, 
there wasn't enough material to fill a second CD, but there is extra material that wasn't on there. It's mostly kind of trippy stuff, but, uh, but it does exist. And eventually I'm going to maybe finish it and do um, like a 90 minute version of the album on blue. Maybe the Blu-ray will have the extra stuff. I'm doing Blu-ray versions of all my albums. So that would be a good place for that. And ironically, the Blu-ray format gives you that flexibility to right. go beyond the of a CD. So I am kind of looking to, you know, to, to do that and maybe take advantage of the fact that that already just, let's say for a single CD album like Static, it's perfect to be like, okay, you know what? It doesn't warrant doing a two CD version per se, but on Blu-ray, here's that extra 20 minutes of music that I had for it. Um, so, some of which you can find on Breakdown, which mm. is the, uh, the new compilation uh, double CD album that I have uh, just came out uh, that has the song <laughs> outtakes uh, stack, for example. Nice. Uh, but yeah, anyway, to get, to get back to what you're saying, Joe, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's exactly how I described it, really, where it was like, um, well, okay, I'll tell you more specific since you guys are into it. Um, ex- so, okay, so first of all, it came all the song, not all the songs, the main songs on both albums came from the material we had for Sound of Contact's second album. And when we sort of, you know, put that on hiatus, let's say, because it's not completely done, Sound of Contact, it's just dormant right now until we figure out, like, how we would redo it, you know, hopefully with all the original guys, but, you know, two guys quit. So it's just sort of like, all right, let's just put that on the back burner to leave it. But the material itself, you know, everyone that was the lead songwriter of a song got their material back. And I, I was the lead songwriter on a lot of songs. So those are the songs that are on in continual. Uh, there's some songs on Simon's record that's coming out, and Matt's record, and if Kelly puts out a record. But the lion's share of the material was mine. And so that's, that's on these two records. They originally were potentially going to be on one record, but they didn't fit. Uh, and when we were going to play Prog Stock, we were actually going to play Invasion and The Mothership of Light, uh, which is wow. part of Annihilation. And we were actually rehearsing it. And I, and I had this killer band with Marco Miniman, Randy McStein, and Gabriel Gudo, and Letitia Wolf was there even, and Fernando Perdomo, and Matt Dorsey, of course. And, and at a certain point, and these, these guys are top pros. They just looked at me and said, Dave, we're going to have to cut some of these off the set. <laughs> too much. And when Mark Miniman tells you something's too much, that's the point. <laughs> that's the point where you have to take notice, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like a human, you know, a computer when it comes to, I mean, if you did the Steve Hackett gig. Uh, on Cruise to the Edge just as a one-off, like just the shows on Cruise to the Edge and learned all that Genesis material to do just those shows. Mm. He'd say to me, though, that it was insane and a lot of work and more than he thought it would be. But uh, but he did it. It was great. And he's just an amazing musician. So, But he and Randy, they were just like, look, uh, you know, it, it's I think we need to, uh, to cut those. And actually, since we performed before the album even came out, that's when I decided to split it in two, um, and not so that. So originally, if you want to 
get the idea. Now, I've never said this before, so this is like a, a new thing that I'm sharing here. Uh, but you guys, since you're fans, I, you know, Paul, you were saying, oh, I don't want to ask anything dumb or I'm a fan. <laughs> this is good stuff. This is your <laughs> the music. I, I welcome that. I think that's great. And that's, you know, I mean, it's way more interesting to talk about stuff that you like than just, you know, a rote sort of uh, interview asking for details. It's like, I'll, I'll share some, some things that, you Sweet. know. Not, not otherwise, no. Uh, so one of them, so the original idea, especially, let's say, in terms of what the Sound of Contact album was going to be like, it was going to be one album with some spillover, same situation, actually, in, in uh, Interstellar Reunion and, and uh, uh, Made of Stars didn't exist. That sort of came out Interstellar Reunion, which was originally called We Are, actually, which mm -hmm. is I Am. And I sing We Are in it still, but I didn't call it that because I didn't want to just, you know. I took a, a we, the, there was a connection. The album was called Aliana. Okay. And it was one album and with some spillover, like where We Are was going to be on maybe the third album. And they were all going to be connected to Dimension Art story-wise. And then when we took back our songs, um, I agreed with Simon not to make that direct connection. Like, okay, you know, uh this isn't the sequel or the prequel to Dimension Art directly. Although I would say that it still exists in the same universe and you could connect it yourself, but I'm not sort of spelling it out. Whereas when we did it as a, we were going to do it as a sound contact out, we were kind of, you know, spelling it out a little bit more like this is, this person's related to this person's related to that, you know, how it really connects. But I, I, I don't spell it out like that. That's up to the imagination of someone. But, uh, but anyway, the, arc of the whole thing was a bit more like dimension on where you just you know you you had all these adventures and then it just sort of culminated in this climactic grandiose way a la supper's ready another homage to the classic genesis sort of you know uh ethereal you know mega moment um and um so it had it had that uh, with uh, Mothership of Light, which I think was originally called uh, Bio something. Uh, you know, um, a lot of times I would write the lyrics, but Simon would name the song. And it would be, like he, like, for, like he named the song Realm of Inorganic Beings. <laughs> and it, was, it was originally called something like Sea of Voices, which is just a working title anyway. But because um, it was like a sea of voices, so I just called it that. And then, you know, he has like a list usually of like names. Omega Point was on his list, but I wrote most of the lyrics, you know, and I would just sort of just like a thing that we did. But uh, when I took the songs back this time, uh, I, I used my own uh, titles. Um, <clears throat> I think maybe in all cases. Yeah. Um, this time I did. But on Dimension, I, we used a lot of his titles. But anyway, um, so yeah, so that that's so it was going to be like that one album when we were doing Prog Stock. It was already still going to be that one album, uh, and then when we decided to cut our set short, and I don't know, like I was just talking to people, and I just got this. And also, I'm very you know, as you know, I'm very interactive on social media, 
So sometimes I'll even just ask, like, what do you guys think of this, that, whatever, you know, and everyone shares their opinions. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe I will do just, you know, one CD and hold back and, and, and uh, you know, do the other half. And then I had all sorts of different material um, that um, fit with the uh, theme and the style that, that had nothing to do with sound and contact, like Vampires of the Soul. Mm. That was actually from the static sessions. Um, I did like an improv um, <clears throat> session with Randy McStein and Fernando Perdomo uh, after one of the Cruise to the Edges a uh, few years back. And uh, I guess 2015 one even. And um, and there was just these, you know, sessions and and that was from it. Uh, Hypocrites was from it, and like about a third of of um, Static was from that. But uh, but uh, Crash Landing was from that, and um, Vampires of the Soul, um, and then some of the other songs were uh, built out of. Um, gluing it all together story-wise um you know and, and and of course uh reprising uh mm. you know different uh motifs and themes from the first uh, acceleration theory album so really it again it the approach is similar to how and why i did new world deluxe edition 2 cd where i had more songs that fit onto a CD, uh, onto one CD. And then since I'm on the second CD to make it not like just filled space, but to actually take advantage of the longer amount of time with something more cinematic and some more segues and reprises to kind of give you a concept album of like in a cinematic presentation you know as opposed to well here are the songs and we're done i mean because you know, it's funny like when you think about like longer songs and like the classic albums some of them are pretty short like close to the edge is three songs i mean i can't even imagine doing an album with just three songs <laughs> <laughs> okay that's what we're done for the year to love that album but um you know it's it's so to me i'm like well there's those three songs, and then there's like seven to ten shorter songs as well, you know. And that's that's how I look at an album. But um, yeah, so that so that's how these um, concept albums kind of work. It's like, well, if you want the room to stretch and get trippy and sort of give people a moment to think and drift off a little bit, and then go back into a a song, a traditional song, and then maybe have a keyboard solo or maybe have like, you know, some instrumental bit and, and have all of, and then sound effects and all, all of that stuff. It, you know, it takes up what it takes up. I don't feel like there was anything on uh, part one or part two that <coughs> didn't belong there. But I, I took some reprises off, mm. uh, which I'll release as, as uh, bonus tracks, but I, I went to the trouble of making a reprise of uh, the end section of know uh, know that you are, um, where it's because I, it, it was beautiful. It was all the strings, you know, um, and so I did a more orchestral, symphonically embellished uh, 
version without the vocal as just kind of like an emotional reprise. But it, at that, mm. I find like where I could put that really looked kind of gratuitous, just sticking in there like, oh, okay, all right. You know, <laughs> maybe I thought like, well, uh, end credits, but then, you know, like in, Interstellar Reunion is kind of like the end credits song, you know, if it was a movie. So it's really, you know, maybe it's the menu uh, music so when you're and you're on the, <laughs> the DVD, the Blu-ray, you know, and you're choosing it. Oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not like it just didn't fit on the record. <laughs> War Room did make it, which is a reprise of uh, Vampires of the Soul. So, yeah, the um, you know, it's funny. The end of so know that you are. So we we we've talked on the Palaver about how you know you you get into something you know, a progressive album that's really good. Sometimes it literally takes years before, y- you know, everything all clicks together. And, you know, over the time that you're, that you're learning it, it, you know, you're, you're bebopping around the, the, the story you're, you're in, into songs. And, and right now, um, literally I've been walking around singing the middle section of know that you are, um, everywhere I go, like in the, in the, at work, it's, I'm humming it. And, and, um, I just love that the part you're describing the end where it comes back in and, and it's, it's just this swell of music. It's, it is such an, an emotional release. And, and, um, there's a certain desperation in, in that part that I just love. And, um, and it's, uh, it's just funny to me that you're talking about that specific, that specific part. Um, this is this this is exactly the kind of stuff that I was that I was hoping to uh, to hear about tonight, Dave. So thank you. This is awesome. I I we've talked about those you know early S albums like Close to the Edge, and we used to joke around about like there probably was like they were you know looking around for Eddie Offord, and they found him like underneath a tape machine with razors and tape, and you know splicing things together to to make all of the takes fit. Um, I'm so curious about you know, putting all of this music together, the, 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 re, the pro- reprises throughout, you have incredible players and I'm assuming that you don't have unlimited access to them. So I, I'm, I'm curious as you're working in all the atmosphere, how much, how much of the, how much is there, like how many times or were you ever in a situation where you're like, Oh man, I wish that, you know, we would have done it this way and I'm going to piece this around and, and move, move this around. I mean, just the construction of it all is mind-boggling to me. Great, um, Paul. Really good. Um, I'll tell you, uh, again, I, I rarely get asked this, so you're, you're asking great questions. Um, my process is a combination of me being pretty good at, like, manipulating things if I need to. Um, I, you know, first of all, I come from a sound design background. I have a sound development company called Sonic Reality. I've sampled, you know, which is recording the sound of uh, instruments, pretty much every type of instrument from orchestral to guitars to keyboards to drums. And I've worked with a lot of famous drummers like Neil Peart and Bill Cobham and Terry Bozio, sampling their, their drum kits, Nick Mason, Alan Parsons. So I've, I've got a lot of experience in the engineering and sampling and sound design area, and it comes into play. Um, you know, when I need to do something, I've got a lot of tools. I also work with a company called IK Multimedia that creates modeling software uh, and all sorts of gadgets for music making, um, and I use them. Um, so, 
I have a lot of tools to change something or affect it and get it to be what I want if it wasn't to begin with, if it's in the ballpark. Or if I have to recreate it myself or, you know, and I have a lot of instruments, you know, I could pull a dobro type instrument off the wall if I need to, or a Rickenbacker bass, you know, I have, even though I'm not a bass player, but if I needed to, you know, I could grab the bass and either Fern could play it if he's around, Fernando, Perdomo, or, or myself or whoever. Um, I mean, if, even if like I was desperate, I could actually sample it and play something from the keyboard. I mean, there's so many ways. I haven't had to do that though, but... Um, but I have changed people's notes uh, using a program called Melodyne, which yeah. some people use as like an auto-tune. And I use it if I need to I, – I don't use auto-tune. I don't believe in auto-tuning anything. You, you have to be very surgical and very um, uh, careful not to uh, abuse that because things should not be perfect, uh, but they should also not be off. So – or and, and actually in this case – um, you know, the notes, if I just want a different note, that, that that completely, not a matter of tuning, but a matter of what notes are being played, you can actually do some clever things after the fact. Cool. But when it comes to, let's say, having options, um, I get multiple takes from the drummers. And, I, you know, since it's Nick T. Virgilio and Marco Miniman, and they're incredible, uh, most of the time I just kind of, let them do what they're going to do. Sometimes I give them a guide drum track that I do with my drum samples, play it from the keyboard just to get a general idea. And, um, you know, then they'll give me like one or two takes and maybe I'll make some comments and they'll give me one or two takes more and I'll have two to four takes to work with. Uh, sometimes with Marco, it'd be like, okay, give me a crazy busy take and then give me a less busy and just a little more straightforward take. And then between the two, I can kind of decide uh how crazy the drums are gonna be um or if it's you know distracting from the song i I was bit i was gratuitous with the drums on both especially the first album with scavengers for instance it's over the top but it's hard not to because i'm such a fan of those guys and of drumming that it's just a fun spectacle but the song is more important than our playing so you have to you can't take away from the song I think I probably went to the edge on uh, Scavengers, right up to the edge of like, okay, <laughs> okay, but it is a cool song. Yeah, and you oh, very enjoy- cool song. Oh, God. You know, but um, <clears throat> so anyway, I, you know, in the process of making this album, interestingly, I kept taking a long time in the mix uh, stage, which should have been the mix stage because I kept getting ideas. Um, and as I was going, I'm like, Oh, you know, actually, and they were crazy ideas. Like, uh, for instance, and know that you are, there never was a keyboard solo, believe it or not. Uh, in the version that we had for sound of contact, which, uh, I wrote that on acoustic guitar. And I remember I wrote, it was one of the first things I wrote, uh, right around when we were touring. So it was early, it was before I left the band or was pushed out of the band, however you want to describe that. Uh, and uh, um, and it, was a, it was a good time. I was like, hey guys, what do you think of this? And we jammed on it and it was really cool, uh, but there was no keyboard solo. And that was a, a late idea where um, I think, yeah, it was, it was of, because of Fernando. Fernando tends to push, push me in certain areas. It's really great. Um, so he played on it, 
and and he played some bit that I didn't ask him to do, which is typical of Fernando. Uh, and I was like, oh, like, oh, well, that's really cool. Like, he did what he did was he he did the motif of da na na na. I can't really sing it right now, but yeah. uh, but like he started doing the motif for, from for later of lines of drum. He started doing that guitar, and I'm like, oh, I'm like I wasn't expecting that to happen in this kind of different chord section. But I, I should double the length of this, and of course now I have the drum extra drum takes takes to be able to do that. So to change the arrangement, make it a little longer, so so I can have that part in there. And then once I had that part, I'm like, oh, I should just do a keyboard solo over this. Nice. And that's <laughs> I even I think I did it on Facebook Live. I, I did the actual keyboard solo. It's <laughs> like, what the thing I'm going to do this? Of course you um, did. Well, why would you not? So. Well, I don't do it all the time. Fernando does actual sessions on Facebook Live. But every once in a while, I'll do something like that. And uh, so that's how that happened. And then um, also at the last minute, I was uh, for Annihilation for um, part, uh, I guess it's part one. Uh, is it part one? Uh, the Battle Rages on. <clears throat> I think it's part one. There's like a little part before that. Anyway. Um, so the maniacal choir, mm. the um, the you know yeah all that um, <laughs> was I was literally like mixing it and it didn't have that it was just like a reprise of vanished huh. in the record and I was about to take a shower and I was just sort of joking to myself singing it because I, I was like. Like you, you know, like you're singing something in your head, but like me, I'm listening to it over and over, mixing it, so it's just in my head. And I was sort of just kidding around to myself, like, what the, 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 and I'm like, <laughs> no, like Wait, actually, you know what? And it reminded me of Kevin Gilbert's uh, Shadow Self song, which we used to play. And I used to actually have to play these Vikings, he called them, um, these choir uh, voices from the keyboard. <laughs> while I'm playing the rest of the keyboard parts. It was actually quite hard to do that because you had to anticipate and you know to think completely differently uh, timing-wise uh, to trigger them. And uh, I always liked it. I always thought that was really cool. And um, plus, once you're there and you're sort of even thinking anything Kevin Gilbert, at least for me, I'm thinking like, okay, this better be clever. This better be the, the lyrics. Better be select and brain twisting a little, you know, as opposed to you know because it's I don't know like he just set the bar for me for mm. for the lyrics, you know. It's like you push yourself to um, uh, come up with you know add words like animus and just you know <laughs> like that where you're like this can't just be generic. And then it would just. Not, it needs to just be like, wait, what just happened? And um, that's so that, and of course, to top it off, because I'm um, crazy, uh, I asked Michael Sadler, Saga, who already sang on another song, I said, mind one more. And the funny, and, and also John uh, Davison from Yes, and, and my friend Robin Shell, um, and Randy. So all of us sang on this thing totally last minute during the, the mix sessions. But um, <clears throat> with Michael, <clears throat> it's kind of funny because uh, he 
sang Omega Point with us, and he's, he sang it several times, and uh, we even recorded a studio version that will eventually come out. Um, and he loves that song, but he did say to me, um, Dave, it's got a lot of words in that one. It's <laughs> <laughs> practically. And I'm like, yeah, I never really thought about that. And when we played at Progstock, um, we sat in with his set doing a Saga song, Saga Saga. Um, and by contrast, uh, I forget which song we did actually, but it was a song from Behavior, Human Behavior. What, Ken? <laughs> well, Kevin Gilbert, before you get too far off of him, uh, um, uh, he seems to have a very uh, anti-establishment sense of humor. And I think of David Byrne. I think of Frank Zappa. And, and I, I, I just want to resonate or, it, what you're saying about him and his lyrics and use of big words kind of resonates with me. Oh, yeah, cool. I mean, you know, I, I do, but I have to really kind of... Um, you know, push the envelope. Be, be just consciously be like, okay, what? Like, be colorful and mm -hmm. um, think of like something outside of the box um, and stretch. But not always, because you can like you can overdo it. I think and be too clever. You know, like um, that sort of sounds like Spinal Tap. Too clever. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, there, there was something in Spinal Tap, wasn't there? It's like uh, Nigel's clever or something like that. I forget. Anyway, um, but yeah, so uh, there's a balance, but I think there's certain moments, at least for me, where um, it's nice to just do something really kind of out there and, you know, for someone to really have to think about or do a double take and go, wait a minute, what did I just hear? So <laughs> I, I like that. Um, um, but I do sort of owe that influence to Kevin because he, he was, um, you know, really great at that. Um, I don't share all the same uh, philosophies and views that he did. Um, but, um, and I'm not as dark uh, and sarcastic, but I am a little bit. So it's <laughs> an element of that in me and we had you know we shared uh, humor a lot you know when we hung out a lot i mean i was his roommate actually for a while and um so and we would laugh all the time and joke about things and we would even change the lyrics to his songs and any other songs and make turn them into like really you know inappropriate <laughs> <laughs> words just laugh so but anyway, what I was saying about Saga is that the song that we played with, with him was much more, with Michael, was much more straightforward and catchy and just kind of like, yeah, there was a chorus and, you know, it was less words. And so for him, but he, but he also just really liked the song and singing it with us, Omega Point. So that's why I thought, since I knew that he liked Omega Point, and that was another one where I was just like, when I was writing it, it was, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm really... Because I was just thinking, like, it's Omega Point. And again, it was like Simon's title, Omega Point. I, you know, I don't even know what he meant by it. But <laughs> yeah, I just thought, well, it's like a pinnacle of, like, can't make this happen. And I'm trying this and I'm trying that. I'm doing this and that. And it's like driving me nuts. And so same thing with this. Uh, you know, there's 
this kind of insanity of everyone marching to their death in order to try to kill. You know, and so it was like a, like the worst war that we'd ever have, where people were just dying left and right because we've got all these advanced weapons and it just got out of hand. And everyone's just willingly sort of programmed to, you know, march to their death. And so it's supposed to be kind of manic and crazy, you know, and, and then it just abruptly stops, you know, the battle rages on until... And then what that's supposed to signify the until is until a whole bunch of spaceships just show <laughs> and we're in the middle of this battle and everyone stops shooting and just looks up and goes, what? Because, you know, in this story, it's actually, it's only 50 years in the future and we still don't know that there are our aliens. So it's exactly how we would react now if it happened. It's like, wow, like a, a combination of awe and fear. Yeah, Dave. When I first heard the maniacal choir, um, it was it was a jolt for me, and um, and I have to say, it provides such a phenomenal atmosphere to to the whole battle rages on section of annihilation, and and just like you're describing, that's where it gets so incredibly effective when it just kind of stops for the invasion. And we we've joked here on this podcast that. If you are going to write a twenty-minute epic, there has to have at least one battle in it, and, um, <laughs> and you, you you created a battle, and and then an invasion of of um, aliens, and then a, um, a, a the revelation of Kai, this Earthling, which is is so much my favorite part when when. Um, the, the keyboard sound that you have in um, in the invasion part where you're dropping beats and 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 but then it turns into more of like a major and that descending guitar comes in it's just like oh my goodness it is um, uh, and then you know the I'll be the light I'll be the light it is the atmosphere that's in that epic is just incredible mm -hmm. and um supper is ready uh yeah, it's so, a delirium right it's so <laughs> now so it's. well done and and here it is like this like this i mean this song alone could probably you know take me 10 years to to, to really get into depth of everything and really appreciate it but um just enjoying it so much uh, i love hearing you talk about this this is great um some of my interesting thing is some of my favorite bits on the record and some of the stuff that you've highlighted were toward the end, like the dropping of the beats thing. I'll tell you how that happened. It originally, the keyboard solo was actually the same as the intro to the album, impending narration, <laughs> okay. uh, time signatures. <clears throat> and I was watching one of Jordan Rudess's Instagram posts and he is an amazing keyboard player, one of the best keyboard players I know. And, uh, and of course, you know, when you're that good, you got, you know, you might as well show off and, you know, whip around on the keys and, you know, show people how fast you are and how <laughs> not fast everyone else. No, I mean, like, Jordan just does stuff, you're like, holy shit. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, but, um, but he's so cool and, and he, he's very, you know, like educational and, and so, you know, there was this one post he did where he was telling you the time signature changes. And he was just going, okay, seven, nine. You know, and he was just, he was counting it or something. And I was like, 
And it just made me think, I'm like, you know, maybe I'm saying a little too safe in this, mm -hmm. like, you know, and I thought I could drop beats and it would be more intense. And so I tried it with editing. It wasn't played that way. I just did it with editing. Wow. I mean, it's the exact thing, though, that I would do. And this is one of the things that I miss, actually, when we had this sort of round table with Sound of Contact, because that was the best thing about Sound of Contact is uh, we were sort of purists, uh, maybe to a fault. And it was mostly Simon who wanted to do this, and I have to credit him and also, you know, give him the blame. Uh, <laughs> That he always insisted on us being together, uh, you know, in the same room. And, um, you know, but the only, the only problem is a blessing and a curse because the good part is, you know, you get that band interaction and everything. Obviously, it's fantastic. The bad part is it's expensive. It takes longer for everyone's schedules to line up. And it's just it's not that realistic unless you live in, in the same area or something. So, uh, but... In any case, I do miss that. It's the kind of the kind of, it's sort of the thing that somebody in the band would go, "Hey, what if we just drop a beat?" Probably Simon, maybe or or Matt, you know, or Kelly. I mean, you know, the, every they had good ideas, and, and between the four of us, it would just get better and better because someone would say, "Hey, what if we just do this?" So, um, like for instance, actually, I was the one who came up with like the Cosmic Distance Ladder and Dimension Odd was one of the few songs that that. Um, well, that I didn't bring to the table that they actually had. It was Matt's, one of the few songs that he had on the record. He has other songs that didn't end up on the record that will be on a solo record, but he brought in Cosmic Distance Ladder with Simon. They had already worked on it, but they didn't have the middle section. And I was just sort of thinking Bill Bruford and UK and that kind of stuff. And like, you know, and so I arranged that. That was my contribution and the keyboard solo to that bit. Um, but Vice versa, the other guys would be like, "Hey, what do you what do you think we do this time signature and that time signature?" And you know, everybody look, every everyone learn this syncopated part together, whatever. I love that, and I I must admit, in a way, maybe that's a sacrifice. I guess there would be a sacrifice when I'm a trade off. Let's say when I'm all on my own, you know, it's like after everyone's done their sessions, and you know, I wrote the songs mainly, and so and I'm producing it, and it's my project, so. I get the beauty of not having to have a committee decide uh, on stuff, but I also don't have anyone's input. I'm it's all my own with that stuff. So no one, I don't have Matt sitting next to me going, Hey, you know what you should do, you know, or Simon saying, Hey, what if we, you know, it's like no one's saying anything. So literally I have to thank just Jordan Rudess, you know, for indirectly making me go, mm -hmm. you know, virtual Simon or a virtual Matt going, Hey, what if we just change this time signature, drop a beat here and this and that. So I just did that on my own, thankfully, because uh, I almost didn't. And I, I think it gives the keyboard solo an intense urgency. And for it to happen again, I think it makes it that much more of a reason. It's like the first time it happens, it's an introduction to the album. It sets the tone. It sets you know a precursor to what's going to happen, impending annihilation in the name. And then when it actually happens, it's like, whoa, this is going berserk now because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, so it's some of these things, like the keyboard song, Know That You Are, uh, the time signature changes in um, Annihilation, uh, were just like at the end, the, the final touch. And to me, 
So, and, and, and that's why, like, to a certain extent, when some people are getting antsy about the album because they pre-order it, and they're like, where is my album I ordered? And I'm like, well, just please wait. Uh, trust me. Just <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm just putting the final touches, and it's worth it. Well, let's take a step back to Man Unkind. You have a, a brilliant section in there alternating with 4-4 uh, and 7. And, and and it's an amazing Rush tribute. I, I want to hear how this went down with Marco and Matt Dorsey on the bass, uh, at, 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 particularly at the end of Man Unkind. It's just, it's just a nice uh, composition with, with great musicianship executing it. Um, well, interestingly, okay, so that was a song that I wrote with Kelly Nordstrom. Uh, it was a sound contact song. I forget what the original title was called. And was that one where there were two songs that I wrote with Kelly where we actually solved it by, um, in fact, this is how it was. Um, Hands of Time and that one were created from the parts that I added to his song. And I added such significant parts to it that I said, hey, listen, what if we split the songs up? You take back your original song that you had. And then I'll take back the parts I added to it, but I'll give you credit, and you don't, you don't have to give me credit on the, your original idea, which I thought was a fair way to solve it. Um, and so um, that one, we probably did do a sound of contact roundtable on the time signature changes. In fact, I remember Matt kind of, you know, <clears throat> making suggestions and Simon. So. Um, I think so, to a certain extent, but um, it, it changed quite a bit from what mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a tip of the hat to Rush. And I had actually approached Ben Mink, the violin player from Losing It on Signals, Rush's Signals, oh. <laughs> to do it. And I hadn't yet recorded the vocals. And I'm not sure if I had the lyrics finished yet. I might have, but I hadn't recorded the vocals yet. And I've um, talked to him a bit before, a uh, real big fan of his. And um, so he was interested, but wanted to hear it with vocals and wasn't sure. I had actually approached him about doing a cover of Losing It and just, well, we were doing a cover with Marco on drums. Um, and I, actually, Alex Lifeson was going to play on it at one point, maybe, or we were going to ask him, but... Um, <clears throat> and I asked Ben Mink and he declined. But then he ended up playing Losing It with Rush mm. for the first time after that. So I don't know if that helped the sort of love for that and, you know, reviving the interest. But he just didn't want to, like, you know, he just wanted to keep that its own magical thing. And I understand. But he was interested, more interested in doing something new. Uh, but I don't know. I just kind of felt like. Um, that was an unknown and I, I like to and I've never met him in person so I like to work with something that I feel like is a green light and I know what you know, who's going to play on it and, and you know so I know what I'm working well, so yeah a quick shout out to Progstock favorite Joe Denison he, he became your electric violinist at that point actually uh, he became the electric violinist and Caitlin Wolfberg became also one of the soloists, what happened was uh, um, it started with her. Um, 
Fernando, um, the hub of all musicians, uh, you know, everything, everyone's six degrees away from him, um, and Kevin Bacon. So, um, he turned me on to, um, both Ruti Celli and, um, Caitlin Wolford, who I use both of them for strings, uh, Ruti for cello and, and, um, Caitlin for violin and viola. And so I had her do the string parts and then since she was recording in the Fernando studio, uh, I, I mentioned, like, uh, if you want to try taking a solo, and at that point I still was thinking Ben was going to do it, um, go for it. And then she did it, and it was pretty cool on regular acoustic violin. So I was like, all right, all right. So I rearranged certain parts and this and that. But then when we played at Prague Stock, I actually asked, <laughs> this is funny, nobody knows this stuff. I asked um, Eddie Jobson if he wanted to do it. And... I don't know if there was, he's a client. There, there was, you know, even though I think, you know, we talked about working together and maybe we will someday, I don't know. But uh, he, for the violin, he just, you know, he, he declined. So I was like, all right, um, what should we do? And then someone recommended Joe, I think it was probably, probably Fernando, and said he's great and everything. And I'd never met him before. And, but, you know, he's super nice and he did it and he was amazing. And so I was like, after we did that, I was like, okay, you want to play on the record? Like, do you want to just do the solo? And so it's a combination of Caitlin and him. But he does, like, the main end solo, the end section. Um, and the end section really is a tip of the hat to losing it. Um, it's, it's really that kind of just off-the-rails, um, emotional playing. And the only thing about losing it is I just felt like they could have gone on longer uh, without fading. Uh, which is often the case and that's another beautiful thing about having a longer you know amount of time on the album to do it you could do longer outros i'm, I'm big on outros um you know if, if it's cooking you know let it cook a little longer uh and enjoy another extra minute of it at least you know fantastic nice, nice. so so dave doesn't it make sense that at this point to just get all this all these guys and gals together and, and do a tour? Nope. For I'll tell you why. Um, <laughs> it barely makes sense even doing that for Cruise to the Edge. We went all out like crazy. Uh, we had um, Marco Miniman. Uh, <clears throat> we had uh, Matt Dorsey, Randy McStein, Fernando Perdomo, myself. Gabriel Gudo, we had Leticia Wolf with us as well, who does Eliana. We had John Davison guest with us. We had Steve Hackett guest with us. And even Tice Van Leer from Focus, who didn't even on the album guest. Wow. We wanted to, which is really an honor. Nice. And we had actually Michael Sadler and the McBroom sisters backstage. And they couldn't even play with us because our set ran out. But that's a separate thing. It's just kind of like, you know, tightness of festivals and cruises and stuff like that. But it was, like, difficult to manage having that many people on stage to do the full, full thing. And to tour would be, um, we, we have a bit of a sort of a paradox, you know, I don't know, like a, a, a chicken and the egg situation where the band is full of all sorts of talented people in their own right that could do their own show and you know uh and plenty of fans would 
be thrilled. But for some reason, like as in Continuum, no one, it's just not popular enough yet for people to know. I mean, if you were to name drop the people, it's, it's still not enough. I think because we tried that, we played a show after Prague Stock in Chicago, and you'd think just the fact that Marco Miniman, who's more famous than all of us, um, was there, that the place would be filled, but it wasn't. And, uh, and, and it's like, well, of course, you know, it's new. And people don't know. It takes a little while or it takes some, you know, spreading the word or whatever it takes. I don't know. Time uh, for people to know. So it's kind of chicken and the egg. If the demand was there to the point where we could show up in wherever cities uh, and sell tickets enough to cover the cost, because the cost of just traveling with that many people, let alone the caliber of musicians that we're talking about and what they're used to, you know, like, I mean, Marco is used to flying first class wherever he goes and, you know, stuff like that. This is not, we're not by a bunch of kids who get in the van and, you know, sleep in one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, some of us are accustomed to some, you know, so, um, but that's okay. Cause that's the nature of, you know, the lineup. Um, and you know, with my solo band, it's a bit more, uh, flexible because it's billed as Dave Kersner. So it really could be just me or it could be me with Fernando or me with any combination of musicians, even though there's kind of a core group, but it's still, it's flexible. Sometimes we have the McBroom sisters. Sometimes we just have one like Durga or we have none. Sometimes we have a different rhythm section. Like when I'm in the UK uh, versus uh, the States or even Cruise the Edge. This time we have Nick DiVirgilio joining us, whereas usually it's Derek Sintron. Hmm. So, um, you know, but it, it's easier to, to flip around. Whereas within Continuum, you know, it kind of has to be Marco or Nick on the drums for it to be in Continuum, my opinion. Yeah. If, if we had Craig Bundell, probably we could pull it off and everyone would be happy anyway because he's sort of. Sure. You know, but if we just swapped them out with all my guys, we might as well just call it, you know, from my solo band, we might as well just call yeah. it, which is exactly what we're doing on Cruise to the Edge anyways. Um, it's kind of a hybrid. We call, I think we call it Dave Kersner and Friends, but basically a lot of the guys from In Continuum actually are there. We almost could call it. We really could call it In Continuum. It's Nick Tiberdoli is on drums. Gabriel Agudo is there. Letitia's not there, but Randy's there and Fernando and Matt. So, I mean, it is in continuum, actually. We probably should have called it that. But um, but it's even that is just easier to say, okay, it's, it's Dave Kersner and friends or Dave Kersner and whatever. And, um, but anyway, to tour, when the demand is there, uh, you know, it, it, it's easy, it, and it's hard to say, but like it's pretty much like if, let's say, promoters or venues or, you know, people... If, if enough of them were just, you know, saying, we want a show, you know, then we would, we would find a way to do it. Uh, but I mean, people do say they want a show, but I mean, like, really, like, yeah, guarantees to cover the cost, because otherwise it would just be very risky. And, but, you know, it, and it's the other thing is this. A lot of times when it's a new band, you would normally climb up and play smaller clubs and then bigger clubs and bigger clubs and then then theaters and concert venues. Uh, this is more of a concert band right out of the gate. And the guys that play with me are guys that play concerts. They're not like just starting out. There's some right. of the time 
guys in the world. So I, you guys get it, and yeah. my existing fans get it that they understand. But like, uh, there's a bigger world of uh, people out there that if if they really understood, like, oh my God, this is like a super group. And we need to, uh, we get these guys, we're, we're all in, we'll promote it, we'll, we'll advertise everywhere, we'll, you know, put up posters and hype the heck out of it, because they're going to deliver, it's, look at all these guys, and listen to this album, it's going to be like a new sort of Pink Floyd Genesis type of concert, with the lights and everything, the, the material and the musicians are there, but... It, that's without that happening. Maybe I need an agent or something. I don't know. But without all that machine doing it, it's just like, well, if I'm bankrolling this thing, no. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I'll you, um, yeah. I joined another band. It hasn't been announced yet. It's another kind of super group. Oh, oh we heard this. This was my other question because I know you you sort of teased this in the last interview, and I was wondering if if maybe if it was time to reveal it. But, um, and I probably said this last time, but like, I'm not in charge. And so, and I'm not paying for it. I get paid instead of paying for it and, and running the whole thing. Uh, I don't get as much of a creative, uh, stamp on it yet, but, um, but I'm involved and, you know, as long as it takes off, uh, it'll be cool and, and it'll be nice to actually tour based on, someone else's uh machine that they've got you know a whole sort of um you know they, they there's enough um it's it's i can't really say what it is but it, it's basically has enough appeal probably uh, you know on its own and with all the managers and agents involved for the whole thing to to go and plus Maybe it could. I don't know what kind of venues we'd play anyway. Maybe they would be mid-sized clubs, um, and it would probably work for that. It's a little less um, THX production, you know, than what I'm doing, uh, where I want to do a show in surround, and I'm very sort of, you know, elaborate with my dreams of concerts, but uh, for something like in continuum with visuals and everything, but. Um, so there's that, there's the two things, you know, there's something really, uh, that I have, a you know, a big, uh, part in the creation of the creativity, but that needs legs to be able to really travel and do all that stuff. But, you know, starts with, got to start somewhere. So the album's there, if it becomes a hit, then that changes everything too. You know, that's always another way to fund. I remember uh, one artist, I shouldn't say who, but uh, probably not hard to guess, um, pretty popular, in fact, maybe one of the most popular artists in the progressive rock genre, um, <coughs> told me once that he does uh, special editions, uh, like limited edition in like 2000 at $100 each to get $200,000 roughly to fund the tour. And that's really smart course you know when you can when you can do that kind of a thing so if, if you're you know like when you reach a certain point of critical mass you can kind of do things like that and and you know if you're not going to get it from the label which is increasingly harder to get tour support from a record label um you got to think of ways 
one way or another to cover those costs and take those risks. But even if you even if you had a couple hundred thousand dollars to pay for tour buses to go around, you still I mean you gotta advertise, but you still don't know if people are gonna care enough to uh, to go. I remember one thing, I'll just say this. Uh, when we did the show in Chicago as like a kind of test, I remember a lot of my Facebook friends who live in Chicago were like, oh, I missed it. Yeah, it's kind of busy. I'll catch it next time. I'm like, no, no, no. There isn't going to be next time. Like, that was it. <laughs> let, let, let's pivot to something that, 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 that does, you know, make money, uh, sonic elements. How can I sound like uh, acceleration theory? You know, I'm, I'm that consumer, and I've just heard your album, and I'm blown away. And what 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 packages or sounds might I be interested in? Well, that would be Sonic Reality, actually. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, that's okay. It's a, Sonic Reality, absolutely. The uh, well, I mean, it really, to be honest, um, you know, Sonic Reality and IK Multimedia, um, those are great tools, and I use them. So, I mean, uh, when it comes to mixing, I use T Rex. When it comes to guitar processing, I use uh, Amplitude. And I use Sample Tank from IQ Multimedia with, with my sounds in it from Sonic Reality. Um, so certainly, uh, in Miroslav, you know, Philharmonic Orchestra, so certainly a lot of those sounds are the sounds, you know, that I use. So sonically, you'll get pretty close. But, um, you know, really, a lot of it is the sound of the players and, uh, you know, the, the mix of the musicians. Um, so I can't you know, claim uh, that I'm responsible for all of it. It really is a team effort and a, a, a blend of those sounds and styles. Um, so, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that like in the, in the same way that my uh, music is like partially reminiscent of and I'm very transparent and honest about it, you know, of the influences, uh, the root influences like Genesis, Pink Floyd, King Crimson, yes, you know, the prog rock founders of the genre. <clears throat> and yet at the same time, there's something sort of modern alt-rock about it and also uh, kind of futuristic or forging away in new areas. Like probably one of the areas that I'm more unique in uh is would be uh blending in film score type music and cinematic elements uh like especially because with the modern technology uh you can have higher resolution sound effects and all sorts of um uh, you know, there's more things you can do with uh digital audio workstations than you could do let's say when they made dark side of the moon it's still way ahead of its time and lots of cool sound effects, but, uh, and some things, but this is, um, um, you know, this is an opportunity just to do more. And I take advantage of that. In fact, I'm really looking forward to doing the set surround sound mixes because the, mm. they were designed with that in mind. Whereas most of those albums back in the day, apart from Pink Floyd, who was very forward thinking and was thinking quad, at least they did quad back then. It's crazy. But, um, but anyway, you know, I'm thinking 5.1 when I'm making these records, it's just not released yet, but, um, but they'll, they'll 
it'll fit like a glove and be like, oh yeah, this was made for this format. Uh, so yeah, impending annihilation would be kind of the peak for me, where, where I just really surrendered to the sounds and felt like I was in, in that world. It was fantastic. You know, one of my favorite bits is the very beginning of the album. And I struggled with what was going to start off the second record. It wasn't necessarily going to be impending annihilation. Uh, I went back and forth with that one. And it, it didn't have a keyboard solo also. It was just the music without the keyboard solo. The keyboard solo was a later idea as well. And, um, but I had actually thought about, like, like how, you know, what's the best way to just, you know, start the album off in an exciting way? And I remembered that Cosmic Distance Ladder actually was a really fun, big way to, like, you know, smash the, the face uh start off a record so i thought oh yeah okay you know and you know it, it was a keyboard solo song although ironically the funny thing is when i did uh so they brought in cosmic distance ladder and i told you i manipulated the middle section to make it kind of clever with time signatures but then i did a keyboard solo and i was like oh and i just did a keyboard solo over the whole thing and they were like uh dave no one said this was a keyboard solo song and i'm like oh Oh, I said I kind of heard it. Like it reminded me a little bit of uh, Second Home by the Sea. By Jeff. <laughs> I thought maybe it could be like that. And they're like, no. And so what we did is we actually took. And it was a good idea. They were right. Um, <clears throat> it would took like part keyboard solo and then traded off with the guitar, which was which was worked out really well. Anyway, I, I don't even remember what the original parts were. I should probably dig that up. I'm sure we have them. We just muted them you know it's like okay you stop playing and now the guitar player's playing and we kept the good bits i guess but anyway um but it still was a similar kind of uh tony banks influenced keyboard solo uh motif you know melodic uh, arpeggiated thing so um <clears throat> i kind of just thought oh well that'll work and so that's you know and so but i really like the way and the impact and actually once i started thinking that way I thought of the Leslie piano intro, which was real delicate. And I like that dichotomy of like, here's something nice and innocent, and delicate. It sounds a little suspicious, like something might happen. It starts to crescendo a little bit and then bam, you know, it's like, whoa, all right, now we're talking. So um, <clears throat> I'm glad you liked that one because I, I, I'm really happy with it the way it came out. But I have to admit that that was, you know, a question mark, how to start off the record. Um, what were the other things that I had going to be? Well, I was going to say another peak is know that you are. I mean, you you get some references to Supper's Ready with uh, It's a Con in there that that I that I find fantastic, and and there's a Tony Banks uh, type tone on the keyboard solo. I, I would say that's definitely a peak of the album. Yeah, it was would have been fun to be honest with you with uh, Simon Collins singing it, um, especially since it's. You know, so there's so many nods to Genesis like that. Um, and actually, we did Guaranteed Eternal Sanctuary, man. Oh. Um, ah. Guested on uh, Packets record, because Simon and I guested on uh, Genesis Revisited. We guested on Supper's Ready. And he did Guaranteed Eternal Sanctuary, man, and Apocalypse in Night, or, you know, the 666 part. Um, and, uh, um yeah so anyway but thanks i you know i i love that song 
and I'm really happy with the way it came out. Um, and it yeah, definitely has, you know, it's tip of the hat to Genesis moments. Yeah. Dave, Dave, I ho- hope you don't mind me asking this. This is a, this is sort of a sidebar away from music, but, uh, it seems, it seems clear that you share at least in part, um, a love of, of some sort of sci-fi. So I, I can't help but ask if you have any strong thoughts or opinions about the uh, upcoming uh, Star Wars movie, uh, something that we talk quite a bit about uh, on, on sidebars here at the Palaver. I was curious if you have any thoughts as we approach the release date of that. Okay, well, yeah, I do. I'm a little nervous. Um, I, uh, I, I did enjoy The Last Jedi, even though every Star Wars film has its cheesy moments or stuff like decisions or like doesn't even make sense or like that why did they have even that character is not really a likable character or you know like stuff that you know but I still enjoyed it and I sort of take them all as as they are and this one I'm sure I will enjoy it but I'm just nervous that like um you know JJ Abrams on the one hand He's great at certain things. And then I think he's sort of deficient in others, like story. And I don't know, like he just, he's great at making stuff look cool and he's got good ideas. But I don't know if he has like that real good sense of like a great story. Um, Like I remember seeing the movie Super 8 that he made and it looks so cool from the, from the trailer. And I thought, oh, this is going to be like a Spielberg movie, you know? And I went to see it, and it was like, it started off kind of good, you know? And then it's just sort of like, what? You know, it just kind of didn't, and no one talks about it anymore. It's like, it's not like Close Encounters, you know? Spielberg was a genius. Um, so, and I don't think Lucas, I mean, he was in a way, I mean, the original Star Wars is, I love it. Uh, but you know the prequels were bad. I mean they're good. I enjoy them, but they they're, you have to forgive a lot of bad dialogue. And... You're you're fitting right in so far. <laughs> you know, I think like, I don't know. I mean, I have a feeling. I don't. I, I, I'm trying to be neutral about it. It could be awesome, but there's a. 50 50 at least chance that it's going to be great or it's just going to be like uh why did they do that like even honestly and i'm a little bit picky you know like even the stormtroopers with the jetpacks is just like what 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 is that like why because the mandalorian's great i love mandalorian by the way um and you know so we're going to give them jetpacks it's like we don't you know we don't need that you know like i mean it's neat but you know and it just doesn't even make sense that that Finn, who was a stormtrooper, wouldn't know about that. You know, all of a sudden they have it. Just it sounds gratuitous. It sounds like a gimmick. Uh, but that's the least of my concerns. You know, I, I think like how they're trying to put Palpatine in it. Uh, I hope they find like and and I better freaking explain Snow. That still bothers me. It's like what? Like he's just you know. And, and people say it's interesting about that. Some people say, well, we didn't know who the Emperor was in the first tr- trilogy. It's like yeah, but. The difference between that and now is we have six other films before Snoke, even more than that, if you count the other ones, where Snoke wasn't around at all. Right. And if you right. connected to somebody that was around or this is some good explanation for why he wasn't, then, you know, it doesn't make sense. 
you know, so somebody better explain it. Otherwise, and, you know, some people say, oh, well, he was killed, so it doesn't matter now. It's like, no, it still matters. I mean, that whole thing is like, what is that? He's not a Sith. Then okay, he knows how to use the force. I mean, <laughs> Snoke is Jar Jar. <laughs> Jar Jar, which was just you know a mistake of comedy, you know. And so I, I don't know, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited to see it, um, but uh, <clears throat> it's a little nervous about like whether or not they're going to nail it. And I, you know, I think some of us, probably all of us, think like you know we could make a better Star Wars movie, you know? And, you know, at least we would know. I, I do think that we all know what a good Star Wars movie would have and not have. Um, and that's why The Mandalorian is... Do you guys like The Mandalorian? Have you seen it? I, I haven't watched it. I'm, I'm saving my Disney Plus dollars uh, to spend on uh, on the Dave Kersner uh, Bandcamp page right now. So. Forgivable. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, uh, it's a TV show, but it's, it's well made. And the fact that they have Darth Vader in it. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I just spoil it for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's um, at least the fan reaction to it positive mostly because um you know it's just it's, it's smartly done it's a little bit sort of pandering to you know fan service and things that are just like nostalgic and stuff which i don't mind i don't mind that really and kind of fun but there's, there's you know it's, it's entertaining and it's a cool story and they haven't offended me yet with anything you know stupid like let's say leah uh, princess leia flying through space like mary poppins or something like you know i'm just like thank you thank you (laughs) (laughs) that one yeah that that whole episode makes midi chlorian seem reasonable but that's a whole different (laughs) like don't ruin it man you had such a cool like mystical thing and now well it's a matter of how much midi chlorian Oh well, I mean, you know, I, th- I thought I thought that George Lucas prequels was a case of big man in charge. Everyone, no one, he's not either asking or everyone's afraid to say, "Yeah, I don't know about this line about the sand getting everywhere." I'd maybe cut that. Like the editors were like either afraid or you know he was just stubborn and said, "No, I love talking about the sand getting everywhere." It's like, okay, your film. Uh, but like, you know, if, if I was the editor, if I was around, I would be like, no, no, man, come on. No, not this. And forget Jar Jar. Who, who likes that? Why would they like them? You know, and everyone knows that. So it's like, well, how does everyone know that? And he doesn't know that. I really, not, I don't understand. But, and also the whole thing about the prequels, but the thing I do like actually about the sequels is that they're visually in line stylistically with what we saw even down to some of the vintage you know monochrome monitor graphics and things which s- still strangely look futuristic you know have you ever even like in, in a lot of sci-fi movies they still do the sound of the computer typing but it just looks so like futuristic past that already 
Um, so it's the same thing with those graphics where they show like the, you know, the Tie Fighter or the, you know, whatever the the ship and the little little radar thing that's you know the shooting and stuff. But but even just like the grit of the practical effects and the way they balance the CGI with the practical effects, it looks more like Star Wars than the prequels did, where they, he just got creative and made it like a different looking world. And it was like, well, if you're going to do that, just make another movie, you know, or, or make it in the future. And, and they got more advanced. Don't put like more advanced ships in the prequel. Right. Then what, right. what happened to them? You know, like uh, sort of. So, um, yeah. So I like the look of the new Star Wars. We'll see. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think it's going to be good or do you think they're going to totally screw it up? Well, I think I think our overall our collective expectations are low, so I think we're going to be very pleased. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I I named my first child Luke, so I'm you know I I will pretty much <laughs> gobble up anything that Lucasfilm <laughs> wants to give me, um, even even if I feel like I don't like it. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty excited for it. So, so Dave, if you're available. Round about the end of the month when we get together for our Star Wars palaver, maybe we can loop you in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I never get to talk about Star Wars, you know, so I'd be happy. Uh, you know, I'd be talking about music all the time, but uh, I can really like talk about Star Wars for hours and hours. I get into it. I mean, you know, and, and I, I like to watch um, uh, Kevin Smith for mm-hmm. Silent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his, his take on it, which is usually hilarious, and I actually watched those, um, you know, the reviews, uh, the Collider, and some of the other stuff, and just kind of, I never know. For some reason, it's it's interesting to talk about, especially because there's so much really great stuff to talk about, and there's so much kind of like things to be, you know, raise an eyebrow to, and 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 kind of say, well. You know, and, and it is sort of interesting to see how people try to explain things, although it's kind of funny. Like, to me, I just think overall it was not – the whole series was not well thought out ahead of time, and um, they're winging it. Um, and some of the decisions, like, I don't know, even like R2-D2 being able to fly, it's like, well, if he was able to fly, then why didn't he fly the heck out of the uh, – um, the Jawas, when he, you know, said he just topped over like, <laughs> it's like he used those to get out of there and like, you know, what happened? Um, but you know, and, and Obi Wan not recognizing him, but then you know, R 2s all over the place in the prequels. It's like, did anybody like not, you know, didn't, didn't anybody think about this? Yeah. So some of that stuff is just sort of like, wow, you know, what a shame. Uh, but interestingly enough. I, I apply that when I do the concept album stuff like acceleration theory. <coughs> I um, I'm writing a story. I might even pitch it for a film. Um, and um, but uh, you know when I write the story for the albums, there's first of all there's a, traje- a trajectory. Beyond these two, I don't know if the third album, there's going to be a third in Continuum album. I'm not sure. I haven't announced that it's going to be an Acceleration Theory Part 3, necessarily. Uh, but um, because the story sort of kind of wraps up nicely, at least musically. But there is more to the actual story itself. Um, just not 
musically written, but, uh, but the story goes on. So, you know, Kai, uh, you know, can I, can I spoil the, the, uh, the end of the second record here? Or should I, should I not say anything? It's your record, man. <laughs> we, we, we can certainly put a spoiler alert on the, uh, on the notes. So <laughs> we're just a focus group. Uh, we, we have a signed NDA. Yeah. I just, you know, okay. So, I mean, it's probably better. I think we've talked about so much stuff that you do just say, look, you should listen to the album. Potentially. So, um, at the, at the end of the album kind of saves the day and, uh, the aliens are pressed. They thought we were just a bunch of uh, destructive um, failures, you know, of, of an experiment of, of evolution for humanoids and that uh, we should just be wiped out and start over, uh, you know, because we're just too destructive with the uh, technology that they gave us. We're sort of using it for not what they had intended it for, uh, you know, for war as opposed to for trying to reach them and do also all the amazing things we'd really all love to be able to do like visit planets and other things. Um, you know, how stupid of us, but, uh, but there are many of us as we know, uh, that, you know, are progressive minded and would be open-minded to, uh, evolving and learning and growing. And, um, and so Kai is one of them and he's totally able to pick up on key things that, show the aliens that we do have the potential and that's what saves the day. You know, this sort of, you know, being able to communicate with them telepathically for one, and also being able to harness the, uh, the liquid light, uh, shield around himself and, and levitating that they, they just look at him like, what is this? This is like, he's like one of us, like we need to stop this and we need to talk to this guy. So that from there, they, you know, take him off sort of like the end of close encounters, you know, he's an, an ambassador from earth um, you know, to go to their planet. Um, but so that's how it ends. But, you know, after that he goes to their planet and, you know, there's, uh, the scavengers still to be dealt with and all sorts of, um, cool stuff. But, you know, my responsibility as a writer is to be consistent with the characters, to think about all those things, uh, you know, cause they, do matter uh, i to me you know that's that's one of the things that spoiled star wars a little bit for me is that they disregarded those consistencies and so it sort of you know takes away a little bit of where it's like well that doesn't really make sense it's distracting it's kind of like mm. but um you know had they thought it out really like george said he did he said he wrote all nine books you know that's what he wrote said back in the day like he'd really thought it out, it would have been tight and really cool, you know, it, as you know, as a series of stories that work together. Uh, but you know, starting fresh with a new one, I get to learn from seeing how that had shortcomings uh, to be. I mean, this this story isn't quite like Star Wars, although in some ways it kind of is. You'll you'll see how it, eventually how it what it turns into is a freaking like goes crazy after this album actually the story gets like more and more like you have to decide basically between all right first we were going to just take all their weapons away and you know annihilate them like bring them back to the stone age or something and now they're like okay so 
what do we do? Half, you know, on a half, like certain portion of the, of the, uh, the population is totally low vibration and manipulated by the scavengers. Uh, and the scavengers are like shadow boxing because they're, you know, shapeshifters and, and sort of manipulating through telepathy at a lower frequency than they're at. So it's kind of hard to even like get to them, but you can get to them through the people that they're manipulating at least and stop them. Um, and then you have the enlightened people or whatever you want to call it, the open-minded people who could be trained sort of like Jedi in a way, I guess, uh, but not with a religion or anything. It's just sort of like, okay, uh, you're vetted, like, okay, you're cool. You know, you're have a certain sort of, uh, mental spiritual makeup to be able to be compatible with this higher vibration um information and abilities and stuff like that so it's very it's kind of an interesting sort of different way it's nothing to do with midi chlorians or anything like that and anybody could do it it's just a matter of whether you are you know susceptible to the negative energy or you're actually like pure enough or open enough to be able to learn all this advanced stuff you have to let go of your fear i mean it is similar to like the original concept of the force and you know feeling the force and connecting with all these different energies of light um you know that's like the, the sacred thing to to this to these aliens is the light you know like show your light and share your light and everything it sort of represents this high energy um channeling and stuff um so when that goes to the next level with more than just Kai being able to do that, things can get really interesting. Um, and what I like about it is that they can get interesting in a way that's potentially believable uh, because as opposed to, let's say, like X-Men where it's like, okay, this guy can spit fire and you can turn into fire. You know, it's, like, it's not a comic book like in that sense. It's more like to do with like the stretching of human abilities of things we can even see now, like where people can be like incredible at Taekwondo or, you know, like have manipulation of, uh, you know, walk on coals or do things that are just like, like superhuman seeming, you know, uh, and, or like, uh, you ever see the movie, uh, free solo. Mm -mm. So, I've no. heard about that. I haven't seen it though. You gotta see it. It's incredible. Free soloing is climbing up a mountain without the gear, mm. just your hands and your feet. Yeah. And this guy climbed up uh, the one in the Yosemite, what's the one, El Capitan. Climbed up at El Capitan. I mean, you know, so, yeah, it's a Spider-Man, a human Spider-Man. So, um, so, so what I like about it is, you know, it continues to be like – your suspension of disbelief is not stretched to the point where it's complete fantasy. It's actually like, you know what, in the future, if we were visited by aliens, if it turns out that, you know, this and that or whatever, uh, that they, they were giving us technology or they maybe they weren't, but now they are, whatever. Um, you know, all sorts of things would then be possible that now we maybe don't think are possible, just like you know, 50 years ago, there's certain things like, you know, having a watch with an iPhone on or whatever, you know, with, with Dick Tracy only had that, you know, so it's, um, <laughs> <coughs> you have to 
think of what would be possible in the future, or what would be possible if more advanced beings were to, uh, you know, share their technology or share their uh, abilities with us. And, you know, there's the whole idea also, which fascinates me, of the small amount of percentage that we use of our brain, um, you know, and so what's the, uh, the rest of it for, or like the rest of our DNA and all those kind of scientific theories about things that are sort of mysterious and unknown. I like to, in fiction, you know, sort of make up what that would be. You know, if somebody, if someone was to say, okay, hey, I'm going to show you how to use, you ever see the movie Limitless? Have you seen that one, anybody? It's another movie I highly recommend. Great movie with uh, Brad Cooper mm-hmm. called Limitless. Um, it actually takes a drug, this weird drug that's being experimented with. De Niro's in it too. It's a great movie um, where it allows you to use 100% of your brain. And it, and it shows like what he's able to do being able to use 100% of his brain. Um, so I love stuff like that. And um, so this is in a way has some similarities to that too, where it's just kind of like, all right, so what if someone came down like an Obi-Wan or whatever and taught you how to use more of your brain? You know, it's like, well, you know, you realize you can, and you know, what's interesting about the levitation thing. I swear, this is going to sound crazy, but I've had dreams where you could do it, where you could levitate, you could fly, not like fly, like Superman fly, but that you could actually sort of like, anti-gravity you know with a certain sort of i don't know like zoning in on it or whatever i I forget how i did it in the dream i haven't been able to do it i don't recommend jumping off a cliff (laughs) but you know but i think like sometimes there are certain things that we think we can't do because of the rules we've sort of been told and have experienced and we just sort of think wow you can't but then you look at birds and they fly around like like it's nothing they're not even worried they're gonna fall it's so weird you know, and of course they weigh less and they've got feathers, but you know, it's still, it's just kind of like, wow, like, like we're worried if we're up in the air. I mean, even me, if I'm in an airplane, there's turbulence, I'm worried. It's like, we're going to hit the ground. But, um, but still like this idea of seeing them and, and, and flying around effortlessly, it's like, well, you know, um, what is it? You know, maybe, maybe other beings can do it effortlessly. They're like, oh yeah, it's no big deal. You know, so. Because they know how. <laughs> we, I'm thinking of so many things. At some point, we should put you in touch with our our, our, our friend Tommy, who's a sound designer, primarily documentaries with uh, his buddy Fran. But um, he, he he's he's done zombie movies and whatnot, and and clearly, um, you, you with uh, Annihilation Theory, you have that kind of uh, screenplay level content i'm just curious what tom would say it's too bad he's not on this call but we we, we catch up with up with him every couple months for an episode dave okay um let's get into your latest release paul made a mention at the top of the show that we were uh covering your latest album acceleration theory although within hours uh you have a new latest album tell us (laughs) well what happened it's called breakdown a compilation 19 95 to 2019 and um the uh the the reason it exists is because actually it started with um the record label um cherry red records and my partners um who are yes's managers uh and they um said to me like they they put out static 
and they put out the Yesterday and Today uh, Yes tribute that he did, uh, Fernando and I. And um, and they don't they don't have New World, and they don't have In Continuum, and they don't have Sound of Contact, which is on Inside Out, and they don't have Mantra Vega, um, uh, which is on Black Sand, which is Heather Finley's label. So um, we talked about it and they said well what if we were to do like um that album pink floyd uh, a collection of fine dance songs you know sort of like an introduction to dave Kirshner or something mm. like that with you know pulling in some of these different songs and i thought yeah you know we sure we could do that so i did it for them and then of course once i got into it i'm like well you know it should be two cds and we should do you know like a cross section of songs and but then it should be something that um let's say if you already bought my solo records that there would still be enough outtakes and alternate versions for it to be worth getting if you you're already a fan and then definitely because it's a really low price to cd i think it's like uh i mean i forget what the price is like 16 bucks or something 17 bucks for two cds which is normally lot higher uh mm-hmm. 17.99 yeah 17.99 it's Not- in my cart <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good way to like kill two birds with one stone which is uh, introduce new people to not only me and my uh solo works but also even to those other projects it's kind of like a hub you know a way to be like oh you know maybe like connect the dots too because uh it's possible that people who bought sound contact aren't aware of me or whatever and when they see that there's something connected to it there they might and you know i'm singing some sound contact songs that i wrote um might lure people in uh that way or the other way around i've actually seen it where people have discovered sound of contact now after the fact uh from hearing something that i'm doing now because i'm more active um and uh you know there's just a little uh a nice the second CD has more of the pulling in from different projects and it goes all the way back. The reason it says 1995, because most of it's really in the two thousands, but, um, 1995 is when I played with Kevin Gilbert's thud. Sure. Um, even though that's the only song actually I didn't write on the record, but, um, sort of paying homage to Kevin, uh, doing joy town, which we did live at Pogstock. Actually. Um, so that's on there to represent, that which was really the beginning of my career as a professional musician uh, or at least what i'm sort of known for still uh, because of kevin's legacy um absolutely yeah. uh, you know and so it was like all right and actually it was a friend of mine alejandro who, who had suggested that he's like why don't you put that on I'm like well i didn't write that song he's like yeah but that you know people would love that it sort of represents you know where you know your story where you came from where, where have you been all this time you know because i'm um, I'm over 50, unfortunately, and uh, <laughs> I've been around the block, and I've been doing stuff, and you know, so this goes back all the way to the mid 90s and um, to now, which is almost 25 years. So it's kind of a nice 25 year anniversary uh, collection. Um, a lot of songs, you know, there's stuff missing, like stranded. I actually made a, a special version of Stranded as a bonus track just on my Bandcamp page, sonicelements.com. Or sorry, sonicelements.bandcamp.com. Uh, so you get Stranded yep. with the Part 10 uh, in there. 
um, at, at the end instead of part five. Um, that's exclusively on Bandcamp, but the the CD doesn't have that, and and the um, you know the the iTunes version and stuff. It's just the two CDs, but it's jam packed with like over two hours of music as well. Anyway, for a good price, so you know it's it's there. Um, you know, to accomplish a lot of different things. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with it. I had a lot of fun doing the new tracks. Is there any way to catch one or two tracks off of Acceleration Theory for folks that haven't committed to Bandcamp? Do, do you have a teaser on YouTube? There is a teaser on YouTube if you go to youtube.com slash band. Everything on social media for Incontinuum is band because there's other Incontinuum companies out there <clears throat> they're not sure there. yeah there's even some continuum and music things too which was uh you know it's potentially you could miss um uh, but in continuum band you will not miss continuumband.com facebook is in continuum band and twitter instagram all of them youtube so um at least there's that but um <clears throat> there's a teaser um, there's a new music video coming out for you don't know how it feels which features uh, mm. Michael Sadler's special guest from Saga, and um, oh, and John Davids. Uh, no, John's not on that song. Oh, not on that one. Okay, okay. But oh, oh, is, is, so 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 that would be Randy doing the higher harmony. No, no. Uh, you 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 don't uh, you don't know how it feels. Has just fan- fantastic two part harmony. I'm curious who's doing the higher voice on that one. He's to. Uh, uh, Wolf, uh, who plays Eliana, does the high harmony. I do the low harmony, and uh, Gabriel does the middle, and then um, the lead, and and uh, then Michael does the bridge, the middle section. Um, those are the sweet, sweet. Okay, um, yeah. So I, I, I'm thrilled with it. We won't pressure you to go out on the road if you can get everybody together in Philadelphia, Dave. You, <laughs> you can you can perform at my house. We'll we'll, we'll pull all the stops out. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Australian in Continuum and Brit Dave Kirshner band are going to do. <laughs> Fantastic! All right, all right. So, I, I think this is probably a, a good place to to wrap it up for now. But Dave, we certainly look forward to keeping in contact with you. Um, just fascinating conversation. So, we definitely want to thank you for for your time here. Uh, and and as I said, look forward to to more in the future. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Great. Cheers. So, for all of our listeners, um, you know, as always, we're inviting your thoughts, comments, feedback, and question on Dave and, and his music and all the various varieties thereof. And um, you know, as we all get ready for uh, for Star Wars, although by the time this comes out, maybe Star Wars is already out. Who knows? Um, you know, but anyway, we certainly invite your your input to the palaver. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. Our email address is progpala at e, uh, gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>